Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Yeah, morning, fellas. We're going to be in Matthew 6. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there or pull it up on your phone. Uh, The last couple of weeks we've been in Matthew 6. This is the second chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've got one more chapter, chapter 7. Kurt Souter and Sam Reeder, the last couple of weeks, really revealed to us Christ's call on us to practice our righteousness righteously. That's what Jesus is getting after in this chapter 6. And what he's saying, what Christ is saying in this most famous sermon, is that we can do the right things with the wrong heart. And that Jesus is desperately after our heart. And today he's going to give the same message that how he's desperately after our heart, whether we have believed in him already or not, but in regards to money. We're going to talk a little bit about money today, the relationship between our hearts and money. And interestingly, Jesus isn't going to tell us today how to spend our money. We're not going to talk percentages. And also, interestingly, you know, Jesus isn't going to say um, that money is evil. It's not. It's a, it's a gift of his. We see elsewhere in Scripture that, that the love of money is evil. But we're going to investigate Jesus' words regarding the relationship between our hearts and money and then see his call for us to live with a heart holy for him. We're going to talk about four ways, so you can know there's four points coming down the hatch, four ways that money can impact our hearts and then learn how God redeems our money. Before we dive into the text, I want to define money real quick because Jesus uses several words here. He says um, earthly treasure, uses the word mammon in some of your translations. He says clothes, food, drink, and so as we talk about money this morning, here's the lens I want you to see with material wealth, okay? Your, your material wealth, your income, your checkings account, your savings account, your retirement account, your investment accounts, your home, your car, your assets, your lunch today, your dinner this evening, material wealth, anything in that context, when we say the word money, that's what we're talking about is, is material wealth. So let's jump in starting in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a medical procedure called cardiac catheterization. Medical guys in the room, I say that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Even if you can kind of put some words together here. You're quickly picking up a a cardiac catheterization is when a medical professional inserts a catheter, your groin, your arm, your neck, and maneuvers it through your cardiovascular system, your veins, your arteries, to get to the heart. And when it arrives at the heart, it does an assessment. It's a diagnostic procedure. It looks at the heart. It it assesses the health or the, the reason for unhealth of a heart. And Jesus says right here in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says that money 
serves as a cardiac catheterization of our hearts. That money gives us a diagnostic of our heart. It reveals our heart. In American English, we, we hear the term heart, and we kind of think the emotional seat of somebody, right? That guy's got a lot of heart. He's got courage. He's got valor. He's got boldness. That's some of what the biblical term heart means. But the biblical term for heart, cardia, remember that cardiac, cardia, the same term. The biblical term is a lot broader. It includes our mind, our, our will, our character. It consists of the whole inner person. And Jesus is saying... That your heart, if it represents who you are, your money reveals your heart. That's point number one. Your money reveals who you are. Money reveals who you are. So the logic of verse 21 makes very clear. What you treasure reveals who you are. It reveals what you live for, what drives you. In essence, what it is that we worship. And Jesus is pointing out here that we can kind of engage in true worship, heavenly treasures, or we can engage in false worship, Earthly treasures, living for earthly or heavenly treasures, and that our money, how we spend it, save it, steward it, is a means to discover what it is that we truly worship, who we truly are. So, I'm going to ask you to put on your introspective hats. This is the beauty that we get to do this in scripture so often as we come to it, not saying, tell me, tell me, tell me what it is I need to know, but we get to come to scripture and let it read us at times. And so, put on your introspective hats. And as Jesus says, your, your money reveals your heart. Let's just talk about some practical ways that our money reveals who we are. Why do you spend money the way that you do? Let's follow our dollar bills for a second. What, what do you spend money on? And what does that reveal about you? Americans, on average, spend $1,200 on fast food every year. What's that reveal? And look, I'm like, there's no shade there. Big McChicken guy. That's, you know, with tax, that's a thousand McChickens. I'm a huge fan. But what's that reveal about the American cultural heart? Convenience, probably, right? I mean, surely it's not like, yeah, I love bad food. No, it's, it's convenience. And what is that one step lower than that? One step deeper into the realm of our hearts. What does convenience reveal is the idolization of, of efficiency. I'm important. I'm busy. I've got no time to cook. Got to go, 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 go. $1,200 a year. Could we be spending our money in pursuit of, of convenience? Could we be spending our money in pursuit of reputation? You, and, you, know, you can kind of think of the quick practical examples of this, right? You wear something in order to be seen in a certain way. You buy something, a car, a home, even smaller things. The type of meal that you buy in order to be perceived in a certain way. What does that reveal about ourselves? I've got... Uh, I heard a pastor give this example, and it's a funny practical example for me. My wife and I, um, we track our, our expenses in this budget app, right? And I'll be scrolling, and I'll see she's bought two coffees in a week. And I'm like, wow, you got a raise. That's crazy. And I'm throwing shade at her already. It's, how could you spend money on that? Well, she also uses our money tracking app. She said, hey, do you know what we spent $40 on Amazon for? My immediate thought in sin is like, well, that's probably her. Then I recognized, oh, you know what? I bought, I bought those two books. I bought those two books. No biggie, move on. But 40 bones. Why am I throwing money freely at it, not even thinking about it, not even considering it? One, I like to know things, right? I love being somebody who's in the know. 
But two, catch this right under here. Right under that knowledge is, I love to be known as someone who knows things. I'll spend money in order to build a reputation. I want to be seen, perceived in a certain light. Do we spend money in a way that builds our reputation? Do we spend money out of envy or comparison? We look into our left or right. We're trying to keep up with the Joneses or even, even affirmation or acceptance. I want to spend money in such a way. It, Americans tend to spend time around people generally in their same wealth bracket. I want, I want to be a part of that one. So I got to earn, spend, save, steward in such a way. I want to follow my dollar bills to be a part of that. I want affirmation, acceptance. Why do we spend money the way that we do? Savers. Y'all are looking at spenders like those idiots. They're just throwing it all in vain. <laughs> Savers. Why do we save money the way that we do? Could it be in pursuit of, of security? I'll be the first person to own this. I, uh, I've got a, <clears throat> a propensity for fear, anxiety. I want to be in control. And so what do I do? I build, 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 build. I've got a buffer so that I, I want to feel untouchable. I want to have a certain amount. And it's funny. There's this arbitrary threshold in my savings account where we dip below that and I'm a little nervous. Are you shaking a little bit? Do we save in such a way that we're building this false security? Do we, do we save in pursuit of ease, comfort? I want, to, I want to retire early. I want to work hard and play later. I want ease. I want, to say, I want to have so much money that I don't have to rely on anything or anyone, which is another potential way we can save money. Do we save in order to pursue a, a counterfeit version of freedom? I don't want to have to earn anything from anybody. I want me and mine to be able to take care of me and mine. Why do we save money the way that we do? I hope that you're asking yourself these questions as I'm asking them. I've got to see the ugly nature of my heart in the last couple of weeks as I've laid these down at the Lord's feet. We talked about uh, two weeks ago, too. How do we give? We're spending, we're saving. Are we giving in a way that reveals our heart? And I, as I let this passage kind of wash over me, laid this stuff down at the Spirit's feet, I recognized um, <clears throat> Susan and I, we, we give some money to the church, right? But we also, there's a couple ministries we really love and support, and we give some of our money to them as well. As I was posturing my heart before the Lord, asking, you know, why, why do I give the way that I do, God? I recognized I give a certain percentage of my money to these other ministries just to prove to God that I'm a good little boy. I want, I want to prove to him that I'm good enough, that I'm worth his love and admiration, that I'm doing the right things for him. You see, you see what I'm doing? You see how much that is? You know what I make. You know what I'm giving, Lord. Don't you love me more for that? How are we spending, saving, giving our money in ways that reveal our heart? And they don't all have to be evil, right? We obviously use and spend and save money in ways that are godly, but we need to take the time to think through those. But that's not Jesus' only point here. He says, you can have treasures in heaven or treasures on earth. And his point is that the convenience, the reputation, the affirmation, the acceptance, the freedom, the comfort that we seek to purchase with the means that he's given us, every single one of those will die when we do. That's a short-term investment. 
I don't have long-sighted vision, eternal lens on uh, what God has given me. I'm buying things for the now that's going to die when I do. But if we store up our treasures in heaven, which John Stott so aptly says, is to do anything on earth whose effect lasts for eternity, to invest in any such a way that it has eternal impact, we'll find those investments eternally protected, indestructible, and unfading. We're going to go to groups later, and we're going to talk about what does the way that you steward your money, spend, save, give, what does that reveal about who you are, about your heart, and how can you steward money in a way that gives God more of it? Point two, verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You might be like me and see that and be like, what on earth does that mean? I want you to know we're not leaving the context of, of stewarding money here. Jesus is still talking about money. In fact, that term healthy, I'm not sure how, how it might be translated in your Bible, but that term healthy literally means do you have generous, others-minded, open-handed eyes? Do you have a, a generous lens? And oppositely, the unhealthy has insinuations of, of greed, of stinginess, um, a miser, avarice, thinking about self. And so that's point two, is our money, whether with generous eyes that have eyes to see or with selfish eyes that um, are fixed introspectively, money has the power to blind you. Money has the power to blind you. It can blind you. And I think this is an easy example for this. We live in the history of humanity, in the most affluent country and society in forever. Right? We've got more access to what we want, when we want it, in a variety of categories. And yet, nobody, myself included, <laughs> nobody thinks that they have too much. Surely we're blind. Nobody thinks that greed is an issue. See, see greed, money can be a, a secret sin. Love of money, it can kind of sneak up on us. Adultery, it's pretty clear, cut and dry. Hey, man, you've, I see what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. Money, our hearts can be so quietly mischievous about this. Nobody thinks that lifestyle inflation. Think about the, the amount of people that you know that as their money increases, so does their lifestyle in such a way that how many men in this room, you don't have to raise your hand, I will admit it, how many of us feel like, man, if I just, if I just made 10% more, I'd be nice. I'd be good. I'd be okay. Why is that, fellas? Money has the power to blind us. We justify unnecessary expenses to ourselves and others. We blame others for our money woes. Money has the power to blind us. So here's my encouragement. Let's bring it into the light. I talked about humility earlier. This room of men is meant to pursue intentional, authentic male relationships where vulnerability is a part of the culture of your group. My, my group of guys a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about money for other reasons. Had a guy in our group come and say, this is the amount of money I make. This is the amount of money I'm giving. I want to increase that. What amazing humility that was. Would you, would you be willing to sit down with somebody and say, here's, here's my budget. Let's walk through every line item, bring it into the light in honest humility and say, hey, brother, 
there anything I'm blind to? Is there anything I'm not seeing? Anything I'm missing? Money has the power to blind you. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the clarifying point again. Money is not evil, but love of money is. When money starts to climb on the throne of our hearts, Jesus starts using the language of enslavement here. And that's point number three. Money has the power to enslave you. Some of your translations might have the word mammon as that last word. You cannot serve both God and money. It might have capitalized money. Uh, Matthew, who who translated Jesus' words from uh, the Hebrew language to Greek, left this in in the original language. And the thought there is basically what God's been saying since the beginning of time is that, um, wealth, money can become a god. And the language insinuates that, that we can treat money as a god. And Jesus is pitting the God of money against the one true God. You can either be a slave of God or a slave of money, a worshiper of Christ or a worshiper of money, but we cannot be both. So practically, what's it look like to be enslaved by money? Gambling, of course, is, is a really obvious example, right? We know plenty of stories of people who have squandered their wealth in hopes to accrue more. And I don't want to overlook that. You know, that's a, that's a real temptation. Um... And I mean addictive gambling, right? That, that's, that is a really, really detrimental sin in certain lives. But I, I don't want the, um, the group of us who maybe don't have that temptation to say, well, I'm probably not enslaved by money. How many of us are, are enslaved to a job that makes us work too much because it, because it pays well? We do a job just for the money. And hear me here. Scripture does not tell us that we should forgo work and to fail to provide for those in our care. We are to work for money. That's clear. 1 Timothy 5.8 gives a stern rebuke of those who do not provide for those who are in their care. But how many of us are willing to take on another project, another responsibility, a little bit more time at the cost of something that God has also given us to steward? Namely, first and foremost, a relationship with him. Or or time with our family. Are you pressed to the point of busyness so that you can't can't catch a breath? Here's what I'm going to encourage you to ask yourself, man. Is is money a part of that route at all? How many of us are tempted to cut corners in order to increase ROI? We'll we'll lack some ethical strength in order to get that, that return. We'll disadvantage another person or even another organization in our jobs. In order to advantage ourselves or our organization. If you're doing something exclusively for the sake of money. I want to encourage you and me. Lay that down at the Lord's feet. God is this pursuit in alignment with you? Or am I enslaved, driven by money? Last point, 10 verses, 25 to 34. So money reveals who you are. Money has the power to blind you. Money has the power to enslave you. Therefore, Jesus says in 25, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you 
by worrying, add a single hour to your life. And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field, see how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So, do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Maybe you caught fourth point uh, in this passage rather easily and clear as it was repeated several times. Money has the power to steal your peace. Money has the power to steal my peace. There are, there are innumerable examples of this, but I think this question will suffice. How many of your stressors, how many of your stressors do you think could be eliminated with more money? The things that are stealing your peace. If I just had more, whether for right or for wrong, whether that's true or not, this indicates that our peace is contingent upon our money. Money has the power to steal your peace. I think of um, a couple, two years ago now, my wife and I were able to purchase our first home. Very grateful to have been able to do that. We're saving, saving, saving for a down payment. And the day comes where you get a cashier's check and you take that down payment and you walk it to somebody you're never going to see again and give them the most money you've ever had in your whole life, right? Here you go. Here's my hope and future. That night, Susan says, hey, what are we doing for dinner? And I'm like, dinner? <laughs> you eat three meals a day? Do you have a trust fund somewhere that I don't know about? We don't eat dinner anymore. What had happened? My peace was gone. I had money, and then it was gone. And what I had learned about myself in a heartbeat was I had put my rest, my hope, my security, my peace in something that Jesus says will die when I do. Money has the power to steal our peace. Jesus makes very evident that money is not evil in and of itself, but when we love it, it can climb onto the throne of our hearts, distorting our identity, blinding us, enslaving us, and stealing our peace. But thankfully, in these same ten verses, he reveals his redemptive power. He tells us what not to do, what to do, and why we can do so. What not to do money in regards to our material wealth. He says it three times in here. He bookends it. There's one at the front, there's one at the end, and there's one shoved in there in the middle. Do not worry. And I want to be clear here as somebody who's prone to anxiety myself. I want to talk about what Jesus is forbidding and what he's not forbidding. Jesus does not forbid thinking. Some of us hear Jesus say, don't worry, and we say, okay. Whoop, wipe it out the window. Not even going to think about it. I trust God, man. Let go and let God. He's going to take care of me. That's not what Jesus says. He says, look at the birds of the air. See how the flowers of the field grow. If that line doesn't make sense to you, he says, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. He's saying Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Dale Carnegie, the richest dudes in our cultural minds. Solomon's that guy. He's the richest man that they could think of. Not even they were dressed like like the flowers of the field. Jesus is saying, consider, observe, look, think. So he's not forbidding thinking, nor is he forbidding 
forward thinking. You know, we could kind of misinterpret this passage and say, well, then I should never save money. Like, if I trust God, shouldn't I just, as soon as it touches my hands, I'm giving it to, and now some, some seasons in life, that might be the godly thing to do, but the, the Bible as a whole, we got to let scripture interpret scripture, and Proverbs in particular really values the prudence, the wisdom behind planning, saving, thinking ahead. So Jesus does not forbid thinking. He does not forbid forward thinking. What does he forbid? Anxious thinking. Is money allowing us to engage in anxious thinking? How many of us have had a hard time falling asleep thinking about money? Whether it's in hopes of getting more or in fear of having less. This is the thinking, anxious thinking is the thinking that undermines your confidence and trust in God's wise and good plan for your life. And Jesus forbids us from doing this. If you're not a believer, I will welcome you to engage in the belief in Jesus Christ where we can live a life without worry. If you are a believer, Jesus says, you've got to start living like you are one. And let me be the first to own, he's told me that a thousand times and I've got to learn it anew every morning. We are not to worry. But what do we do? So we don't worry. What do we do? Verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So what don't we do? We do not worry. What do we do? Seek first the kingdom. Seek God. We're to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Those are words that maybe don't mean a lot to us or can kind of be confusing. We're to to seek him, his will, his plan for us over our plan and our will for ourselves. What is God's plan for you and for the world? Am I running after that ardently? And we're told that if we do so, all these things will be given to you as well. So so does that mean then that if I seek God, that I'll never have any material need? Thankfully, we can look experientially at this past year in which a pandemic shredded an economy. And a lot of us know the short answer to this is, is no. This is, again, where we let Scripture interpret Scripture. What's Jesus really getting after here? Paul, in Romans 8, in his beautiful account of Jesus' love for us, he says, not even nakedness or famine can remove us from the love of Christ. Two things. Paul is suggesting that Christians can, Christians who are seeking God, can experience nakedness and famine. But Jesus says here, don't worry about food, clothes, bro, I got you, right? Well, Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians that he experienced hunger. So what are we to do with that? Here's what we do, men. In light of God's word, we seek God, his kingdom, and his righteousness, knowing that he will provide exactly what we need in order to accomplish his will for our lives. There have been brothers and sisters of the faith who have died hungry. God met their every need in order to accomplish his will for their life. That's what we've got to lay down at the feet of the cross. The the Christian call is easy to say yes to. It's hard to walk with him. But thankfully, we know why we can do so. We've got power to do so. And that's the third point here. Why can we leave worry aside and seek first his kingdom? Because we have a heavenly father who loves us. That Romans 8 passage ends saying, Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. 
we have a a heavenly father. I'm really going to sit here for our last couple of minutes, and I hope that you would take the time to let this soak into your soul. 44 times in the book of Matthew, uh, God is referred to as father. Matthew's 28 chapters, right? Three of those chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, what we're studying this semester, 17 of the times that the word father is used in regards to God are found in the Sermon on the Mount. So you've got roughly a third are coming out of Jesus' own mouth. And 16 of those 17 times, Jesus says, your father or our father. Here's, here's the beautiful reality of that. Galatians 3.26 tells us, whether believers or unbelievers, that if you believe in Jesus Christ and his gospel, that you were created by God, departed from, in, from him in sin, but were reconciled to him by his atoning death and resurrection, that you are now a son of the king of the universe, that God, the creator, is your father in heaven. And before, stick with me men, before we imprint our earthly fathers onto our heavenly ones, let's look at what God's word says about our heavenly father. Who do we have in heaven? He's creator. He's mighty, he has all the power, he has all the wealth, he's infinitely capable of doing whatever he needs to do. But we see in these verses, 26 and 32, that he knows our needs. He knows your acute, specific, individual needs even better than you do. And he values us. He he provides for the birds, he loves you. The New Testament says that, that God, our Father, is rich in mercy abounding in life, lavishing love upon us, giving surpassing grace to us, boundlessly generous. He sees your needs, he knows your needs, and will provide what is best for you, even at infinite cost to himself. That's how we can know that the promise is good. There's blood. He's proved it. John 3.16, maybe the most famous verse in all of Christendom, for God So loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So if God's giving his son, we're seeing the father giving of himself, letting his son be forsaken so that you would not be. Letting his son lose the father so that we might gain a father. The God of the universe loves you like a father. I became a dad this last year, right? I mentioned that earlier. I I feel like I'm just getting to see glimpses of paternal love. And it's a drop in a bucket towards the paternal love that our Father in Heaven has for you. He has the means to provide for you. He knows what is best for you. He cares more for you than you ever could. He promises to give you what is best for you. We can trust our Father. And so, because our Father is good, because he is sacrificially giving of himself, as he, as he met our greatest need in Christ, we can trust him to give us all our needs. I'm going to kind of walk back through these verses, because our, di- our identity, our reality, our freedom, our peace, all depend on who sits on the throne of our heart. Is it going to be God, our loving Father, who providentially gives us all that we need, or is it going to be money? If money sits on the throne of our hearts, we will use it as a means to establish a perishable identity. It'll die when we do. But if we trust in Jesus, we can live out of our eternal identity as a son of God. 
If money sits on the throne of our hearts, we're going to become blind to our own sins, to our own wealth, even to the goodness that's been given to us. But if we live by the Spirit, we're given generous eyes to see with an eternal lens. If money sits on the throne of our hearts, we can become enslaved to it. We will become a slave of whatever it is that sits on the throne of our hearts. If we follow Christ, he liberates us to live in freedom in him with joyful, thankful, others-minded hearts. If money sits on the throne of our hearts, we will lose our peace. We'll be anxious. But if we trust our Heavenly Father, casting away worry, seeking first His kingdom, seeking our Father, who's rich in mercy, abounding in love, lavishing life, giving surpassing grace, boundlessly generous, He will surely give us all that we need to accomplish His good and eternal will. So what's it going to be, men? That's what Jesus is doing there. He's, he's creating a divide. He's saying, the mountain peaks here, you're going to fall on one side. Earthly treasure or treasure in heaven. Darkness or light. Generous eyes or miserly eyes. Money or God. And whether you are already a believer or not, you still have the opportunity today to, to trust in him. If you're, if you're not a believer, you get to see the beauty of a lavishly loving father who sends his son to atone for your sins, reconcile you to him so you can be a son of God. You just need to trust him. That you're a sinner in need of his love and he's giving it graciously. If we're a believer, which a lot of us in here are, right? We, we have to look at the potential threats to the throne of our heart. John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. Right? How many of us know that we wake up every morning with a new thing that's looking to steal our gaze from our Savior? We must lay our money down and let our Father sit on the throne of our hearts. Hebrews 13.5 says this. Keep your life free from the love of money. Right? You do, wealth is not wrong. Love of wealth is. Keep your life free from the love of money because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. God or money, we can only worship one and use the other. One will leave us at the end or forsake us in the day of death. One was forsaken in, in order that we would not experience uh, true death, but that we would experience eternal life. Let's pray, fellas. Father, I thank you that you are good, that you are knowing, that you are caring, that you are powerful, that you are loving, and that you gave uh, in your Son, our greatest need to us, and that you promise to give us all that we need out of your love for us, your zealous love for your sons, to do what you've called us to do. I pray today, Father, that myself included, that as we go to groups, that you would, you would show us the way that money is seeking to climb onto the throne of our hearts, and that you would rightly take that throne as a good, loving God who gives us... Um, the satisfaction, the peace, the freedom, the light, the hope that it is that we're all uh, looking for and that money cannot fulfill because it is an insatiable desire outside of your fulfillment of it. Spirit, I pray that you would help us um, as we look at this passage together this morning, that you would warm our, heart, our hearts to the, the good news of Christ. It's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Before we go, fellas, yeah, got some discussion questions for you. I'll read them real quick. What does this passage of Scripture reveal to you about God? So start, start with the passage, right? Run right back to Matthew 6. What does this passage reveal about who God is? 
What is the way you steward your money? Reveal about your heart. How can you steward your money in such a way that gives God more of your heart? And then finally, how can you trust your heavenly father to provide for you? Excuse me. How can you trust in your heavenly father to provide for you to unleash you to seek his kingdom in one practical way this week? What's it look like to seek his kingdom in one practical way this week? Uh, yeah, go do likewise. Live, live this amongst one another. Bring this in humility and vulnerability to one another. Discuss. Seek the kingdom. Love you, man. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.